Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and we're doing a Just My Two Cents today, a topic that's come up recently. I record these like a day ahead of time, so this is going to feel like four days late in internet world, Uh, but it's a little bit of a timeless topic. I, I have opinions, y'all, and so that's, this is where I share them on my two cents. Perfect place, right? Today I'm talking about fellowship and a search for truth. I think it is good and godly to argue. I have a very specific way I use the word argue because I don't believe that there is any emotional content to the word argue. I don't believe you should be angry. I don't believe arguing necessitates being angry. And I don't believe the word argue is a bad thing. I think it's morally neutral, if not actually good, and has nothing to do with being angry uh, and doesn't really pertain to being right. Uh, If you're seeking to be right, you're doing it wrong. So there there are right and wrong ways to do everything in life. Uh, Some people see arguing only as a search to be right. Listen, everybody wants to be right. But you shouldn't be right by making other people wrong. Argument is not a way to make other people wrong. You should be arguing because you want to be right. And you want to help others be right as well. They should be correct and right and true. These are good things to be. Now it can be difficult when you're dealing with things that are not objective. Or the objective matter of things is impossible to ascertain completely. The sky is blue. Uh, There's no real need to argue about that. Few people will argue about that. If you do argue about it, it's because you're near a sunset and you're being a jerk. Some devil's advocate type. I hate when people play devil's advocate for no reason or without telling the other person. Because then... You're a jerk, and nobody likes you, and that's why nobody likes you. If you're playing devil's advocate, it needs to be for the purpose of fully exploring and understanding an idea, and everybody involved needs to know that that's not your true opinion. So, other other side note. So, arguing needs to be a search for what is objectively true. Now, that can be hard when you're in, the, in an area of theological studies because there are a lot of factors that go into it. And if you had an objectively true theology, well, then you're right. And people wouldn't argue. You could just point to them and go, hey, look at this. And they'd be like, what? And they'd agree with you instantly. And that's not the case. So we have to argue. That's the whole point of philosophy and theology throughout the centuries is all of these things we cannot observe with our hands and with our eyes. We can't see it. We can't hold it in the physical realm. Well, then we have to, we have to argue and we have to guess. That's how you see and you hold ideas and you move them around in your mind to know if they are true or if they're hollow or if they have substance if they are good or if they are bad. That's the only way to know these things is to, to to argue over them. 
and to think through them fully. Uh, I've got a few verses for this, but they don't... This idea isn't exactly covered in the Bible, uh, though you see it uh, at least once, clearly. Uh, There's the verse everybody uses in Isaiah 118, Come, let us reason together. That's only part of the verse, obviously. It's horribly out of context. God is talking to Israel. And his immediate follow-up is, Come, let us reason together. Uh, Though your sins are red as scarlet, I will wash them and make them uh, white as snow. And uh, that's, that's the whole point. Oh, I just got in a lane that's going away. Traffic, man. All right, it's it's not the point of that passage to you know, reasoning with God. He's like, yeah, come test me. Let us reason together, so you know that you're wrong, and it's okay that you're wrong. I got you. That's that's the way God uses it. I uh, use it again in Isaiah forty three twenty six. Once again, the the reason together, the the line of the phrasing recurs, talking to Israel because they're they get stupid a lot. That's the whole point of. The Bible, actually, is that Israel is kind of the whole world at our best. And we still just muck it up over and over and over again as God eternally forgives us and corrects us and uh, makes makes a way for, for those that are genuinely trying and uh, have genuine heartfelt repentance. Because God desires that none may perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's not that's not universalism. Uh, he desires that all should come to repentance. It's still on you whether or not you're going to be an idiot. So, well, what do we got, right? Uh, we have First Peter three fifteen. Always be ready to uh, give an answer for the hope that is within you. Now, that's more talking about apologetics. That's more talking about your testimony, right? Why do you follow Jesus? Uh, why do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? That's not really about uh, reasoning with other fellow Christians that you might disagree with. There is one that I can pull to show as an example. And it's still not a perfect example. Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 3. Paul just shows up in an area called Berea. He's traveling around, and he shows up at the synagogue and says, Hey, I got this Jesus guy you guys have to meet. And he, he preaches the gospel to them using the Old Testament scriptures, because that's how Paul rolled. The gospel came to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. So every town he went to, he went to the synagogue first. He preached Jesus out of the Old Testament as their Messiah, as the come and risen Savior to save them from sin and death, not a political Messiah. And uh, if they threw him out, they threw him out, and then he'd go preach to the Gentiles. Or if he won him over, they'd all go preach to the Gentiles. He'd start a church right there. But he always went to the synagogue first. Or there was uh, people who would uh, be outside of the town um, and have, like, prayer groups at the river. That's where, uh, I forget what town he goes to with, uh, oh, Tabitha or Lydia, one of the other ladies in Acts. Yeah, that's where he meets them, is showing up in town. Uh, so, he's talking to these Bereans, and they, uh, he says, hey, here's Jesus, here's how the whole Jesus thing works, he's our Messiah, 
and they said, hold that thought. You know, give us your full sermon, give us the whole spiel. All right. Okay. Have a seat, bud. And they went, separated themselves, and spent three days digging through the Bible, checking out what Paul said. And three days later, they come up to Paul, the head cocked to one side, real squinty eyes, leaning back slightly. They said, I guess that checks out. All right, what do we have to do? They get uh, baptized and become Christians. And so they didn't take what he said at face value. They proved it against scripture and then they believed him and they believed him completely. That's still not a good picture for what I'm presenting because we don't have the apostles here today to clear up arguments. Uh, every apostolic church and the Catholic church, they're all wrong. That's not, that's not how the apostleship went. The one guy got the one office by a casting of lots not some random archbishop. So, we don't have apostles or Jesus himself in the flesh to clear up these misunderstandings, the the arguments over nuance and detail that we have in Scripture. We're kind of just stuck giving it our best guess, man. And uh, there are a lot of people who approach the Scripture in some very different ways from each other. And they come out at very different places, but all of them have been prayerful, heartfelt, slow, and methodical about the way they approach Scripture, and they still come out at different places. And there's severe disagreements between them. How do we have a dialogue? How do we fellowship together? Um, I argue that we should fellowship together. I'm not really emotionally hurt that there are different churches and denominations. I'll do a blue-collar Bible scholar on denominations one of these days and give like a, a Cliff Notes history of the Reformation into the, the modern Christian area, the American uh, churchianity with uh, denominations and stuff. I don't think that they're necessarily evil in and of themselves um, and that they have a, a useful function in this arena. Uh, Sidetrack, though. So, how do I discuss and argue with other Christians? I think it's good to argue. There are solid areas of disagreement. And uh, there is benefit to be had from pushing each other and pressing each other. Um, But I've got several rules that I follow for how I roll when I have these discussions that um, I think need to be stated, but a lot of them are just assumed when you're dealing with good and godly men. First off, you got to love each other. If I don't love you, if I hate you, I don't care about you. I'm not going to have this conversation in the first place, for me anyway. If I'm arguing with you, it's because I care about you, because I care what you think, I care what scriptures you've read. If you're wrong, I want you to know the truth, and maybe I'm wrong, and I need to learn from you. I don't know yet till we had the conversation, till we hash things out. Maybe the difference is irreconcilable, but I want to fully understand the way you think, because I can learn something. I might be missing something. Or I might help you find something that you're missing. I don't know. But anyway, it's good. Either outcome is good. So, I love you. That's the whole point of the conversation, is I love you in Christ, and I want to know what you know. I want to understand what you understand. And I want you to understand me 
so we can have a, a better, even if it's just understanding, even if we don't agree afterwards, I want to know that you've done your homework, that you've thought out your position fully, and I want to know that I've thought out my position fully. I want to know that I've got all my my uh, my I's crossed and my T's dotted. I need to know that. It was backwards on purpose. So I need to do it. Be- I need to be arguing because I love you, and I need to seek truth and understanding. My whole goal in the conversation is because I care about you. I want to know what you know, and I want to understand what the way that you you think. So I want you to understand me, so I want to be understood, so I'm going to clearly state my case, and I'm going to clear up and answer any questions you may have. But I also want to understand you, and I want to understand where you're coming from, and I'm going to do that by asking you questions and by restating what you've said to me. I'm not going to take a little thing that you said, balloon it to as though it's the entire point you were trying to make, and then take it to a preposterous logical conclusion, and then paint just hand it to you as that's your opinion, uh. That's that's dumb. That's that's bad and wrong. No, that's not how we discuss. I want to make sure that I fully correctly understand what it is that you believe and how you believe it and why. And then I can now restate that to you and run it by you. Does it make sense to you, right? Um, If I restate your case to you, uh, you can say, no, that's not what I believe. It's this. Or go, yes, that's it exactly. Well, now we have some common ground. Now I understand where you're coming from. I need to make sure you understand where I'm coming from. So it's that seeking of understanding. I need to be understood and I need to understand you. And I've got to answer questions, I've got to ask questions, and I need to state my my case clearly and l- allow you to state your case clearly. An argument is a series of ideas that are all connected together in a certain way. So you have to allow the other person to list all of their ideas and explain how those ideas are connected to each other. And then you can have a place of understanding. Now in all of that, you also have to have the same set of definitions. Always define your terms. This is important. You can have hours of yelling at each other and only to find out that you've been misdefining a word or you haven't agreed on a definition of a word you're both using constantly. And that was the whole disagreement. You actually agree. You do not agree on the definition of one word, which could have been like a 10-minute conversation. Go, oh, that's not what that word means. And they would be like, well, it means this to me. And you'd be like, oh, all right. Okay. But you guys actually agree. I've seen those conversations. I've been a part of those conversations. They're obnoxious. They usually go about 15 to 20 minutes. And then one of you realizes there's a mismatch of definitions. And then it takes another 5 to 10 minutes to communicate to the other person that you don't agree on the definitions. It's obnoxious. I've been on both sides of it. It's Because then you go, oh. Well, what are we talking about? It wasn't, there was no truth being had. It was a, it was a false argument. It's obnoxious. So, you, um, you have to make sure you're defining the words the same way. Quick example. If you and I are talking about how to raise and discipline children, it becomes very important how you define the word discipline, how you define the word punishment, how you define the word reward. These things matter. A lot of people... 
a lot of people who write books, a lot of people who write Christian books, looking at you, Dr. Lehman, will misdefine punishment as mean things you do to your kids because you hate them or you're a bad person. So punishment is being mean to your children. And reward is being good to your children. And discipline is when you love your children and you're good to them. Well, you, you can't discuss what are good punishments and what are bad punishments, what are good rewards, what are bad rewards, and what the conditions for punishment and reward are if you define punishment as being mean to your child. It's never okay to be mean to your child. Uh, I define punishment, reward, and discipline very clinically. Punishment is a negative consequence for negative behavior. Reward is positive consequence for positive behavior. And discipline is a combination of punishment, reward, and a lack of punishment or reward. Because when you have a child who does what is right without being rewarded for it, and who does not do wrong things, they don't do bad things, and they they don't have to be punished to do it. They avoid bad things without a threat of punishment, and they do good things without a reward, then they are said to be disciplined. So, in the full disciplining of a child, you have to provide incentives, which come in the form of rewards or punishments, based on their behavior, and then there's also a time to allow them to do things wrong without receiving punishment, and allow them to do things correctly without receiving a reward to allow them to fully be disciplined, to understand that you're not always going to get caught when you do something wrong, and it's still wrong. The, the negativity of the behavior is objective. And so that's how I define discipline and punishment, and I can't have a conversation with somebody who misdefines uh, punishment. Yes, that's the wrong definition of punishment. It's not being mean to your child. Many people define it that way. And so, in order to have a meaningful conversation with that person, I would have to get them to agree to my definition of punishment, agree to their definition of punishment, or compromise and have a compromise definition we both have to remember. Usually, it's easier to just find out which other person either isn't capable of some of the higher level abstraction or is just being obstinate about what the word means and you just yield to that person. It usually happens naturally in the conversation. Um, just yield to their definition, but then communicate on that wavelength. If you know, Sometimes intelligence are mismatched. I don't like the word intelligence. The ability to abstract ideas and to remember information is not a good or a bad thing. It's simply a thing. It's like being able to run fast or jump high. It's nice to be able to do, but it doesn't create an objective good. So um, it's okay to have a conversation with somebody smarter than you and get a lot out of it. It's also okay to have a conversation with someone who is not as smart as you are and to learn something from them. And yes, you have to yield to other people all the time, and that's okay. Toughen up. So the uh, you have to seek truth. You have to seek to be understood and to understand them, and you have to make sure you're operating on the same set of definitions. However you, you manage that, work it out with the other person, but it's there, be aware of it. And then, you got to push. That's the whole argument. It's a good thing. Uh, it's like wrestling. I take jiu-jitsu, uh, I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a, a little bit now, I've done martial arts my whole life, but Brazilian jiu-jitsu is new, and it's awesome. And uh, 
when you wrestle with somebody, which is a, it's a very biblical concept and idea, my goal when I'm at jujitsu is to figure out how to get the upper hand on my partner and not allow my partner to gain the upper hand themselves. My goal is to try and choke him out. Simulate murder is the, the joke in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Everything is done in a friendly environment, an environment to learn. And so you're communicating the whole time, even outside of the jiu-jitsu, you're, you know, if, if oh, suddenly maybe there's a, a thought, uh, you might have injured them. Everybody stops. Are you okay? Do we need to, can we continue? Do you need a break? Maybe we'll, we'll take a break for a minute and then we'll try again. There's uh, The whole goal is for you both to become better, for you both to learn, to both get stronger, to get more technical, to refine the techniques you know. That is the goal in the, in the grapple, in the roll, when you're sparring, when you're rolling with each other. The goal is to try and break that person's arm and try and strangle them and try and thwart their ability to strangle or break your arm. And in that interaction, you both understand there are boundaries and you both understand that you're not going to take it easy on them, uh, except in the sense that we both have to go to work tomorrow, right? So I'm not, I'm not going to go full bore. Uh, if you have a partner, if you and your partner want to, once again, it's, it's you and your partner, right? You, you have to figure out together and it's, it's just really intuitive. Um, uh, but the conversation's the same way. I'm going to push as hard as I can but I expect you to push back at me, right? If I push as hard as I can and you just, I tear through you like Kleenex, that's not good. You've lost and I have lost because I haven't learned anything and I may have in fact actually injured you. If, if your partner doesn't defend themselves, uh, you may actually accidentally choke them out or you may wind up damaging one of their arms or legs if they don't resist, if they don't defend themselves properly. And so it's important to make sure that, oh, suddenly you realize your partner's not defending themselves intelligently at all. Well, now we're going to stop, and this became a teaching session where I'm going to show you, hey, when I do this or when somebody starts to do this, you need to um, you know, bring your arms in close or protect your neck or whatever. Um, and so in the same way in the, the argument, the conversation, if you realize the other person's not pushing back as hard as you're pushing, you need to ease up. You realize that maybe you found somebody who acted um, very brash, but they don't have any of the facts. They don't have any of the social skills. They're not prepared, but they looked prepared. You don't just rip through them. You, you realize that, oh, there's no resistance as I push. And so you pull back to where the resistance is met. And then you try and be more educational, um, in that interaction, right? Maybe I'll let them know, Hey, the verses people used to defend that are usually these. Um, what do you think about that? Or, or whatever, but play with kid gloves. Maybe you just go, hey, let's not talk about it, and like, let's go get coffee. Um, but you push, and you expect them to push back. And the way I think about it, the way I phrase it is, I want to make sure you did your homework. I'm checking your footnotes. So, you know, the citation needed, right, is the, the Wikipedia thing that became a, a, a bit of a meme. And so I'm going to go through everything you say, and I'm going to find every statement and go, citation needed, citation needed. Where do you get that? Where do you get that? Where do you get that? Okay, these points are made, but why do you connect them that way? That doesn't make sense, or it, it leads to a bad outcome, or whatever. 
Um, I want to make sure that you've done your homework. So I'm checking where did your footnotes come from? And then are your footnotes used correctly? Like they may have a footnote, but it may be to a Wikipedia article about gym socks. I don't know. Um, And so when it comes to the Bible things, when it comes to theology, anytime they make a statement, you have to then go and prove those statements. Uh, Mankind is totally depraved. Okay, define depraved. Cool. Now show me where you find that in the Bible. Show me where you find the specific meaning that you use for depraved in the Bible. Where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we find it? I'm. Do you have Bible verses? Uh, when I was in Bible college, the phrase that got thrown around was chapter and verse. And that, you know, give me... If you made a statement, it wasn't citation needed, it was chapter and verse. I need you to show me in the Bible where we see the statement that you made. Um, And this only goes as far as common sense does. Obviously, we speak English right now. Uh, We're using indoor plumbing. There's not really... I can make... I can find proof text. I can find proof text for anything. It's a fun... It's a fun game with Bible college nerds to uh, somebody make a crazy statement and then try and find a biblical uh, proof text for it with the understanding that it's not binding. It's just a fun exercise. Uh, to show how you can twist scripture if you want to. Uh, but it's totally scriptural to wear your hat forward and not backwards. It's uh, I forget what I did. I, I found a proof text for it. Um, you just silly things. But that's uh, chapter and verse, right? You have to have a statement. The verse you reference needs to be in context correctly and in historical context correctly, right? You have to be using a verse that means what it means or what the person is saying it means. It has to mean that. Um, I argue when read at face value. And also, but but importantly though, in context of where it's placed in the book, and that verse has to be in context of history of when it was written. And then if it what that verse means in the historical context, in the context of the flow of that book, and in the bigger picture of the whole Bible... We're not just going to pit verses against each other. Um, you know, this verse says that for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of works. Awesome. Uh, also, uh, what's another good one? Ah, for you to see, you see it is you are saved not by faith alone, uh, but is your works. James, I, I, I misquoted. I remember not alone, or not faith alone, or the, the phrasing. It's in James chapter uh, 4-ish, I want to say. It's been a while. Um, but those verses do not contradict. You have to make them fit. The biblical authors all agree and are all going in the same direction. So how do those verses mesh? How is it that faith without works is dead, but you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith? They have to fit. You can't, as Martin Luther wanted to do, just get rid of the book of James out of the Bible. They have to fit. They have to be saying the same thing in context, in history, in the bigger picture of the Bible. All of the verses have to fit. So you can't just tear something out of context. You can't pick verses you like and then not listen to verses you don't like. Now baptism saves you. You can't just ignore that, right? First uh, Peter 3, 20-something. It's, it, it all comes together. It all fits. So how does it fit? That's the discussion that you're then having, is you're pushing the other person. Did you do your homework? Are you aware of these verses that I know about? And then 
since you're aware of them, how do you handle them? And then the argument really becomes about how you handle the key sets of verses and how do you get them to harmonize. That's the word used, is you have to harmonize these verses. We know that the Bible's in harmony. I'm not changing the melody, I'm changing my ear. How is it that they all fit and they all sound good together, that they all mesh and say the same thing really? Uh... I, I come down on the side that baptism is essential for salvation insofar as it's an act of obedience. And it's pretty difficult to be disobedient to Christ and a Christian. But that's that's my mileage. Um, it'll be awesome to have more deep conversations about it. But that's the way that I approach arguments and conversations with other Christians. Is to, to approach it from a place of love. Uh, and to seek truth and understanding. My entire goal in the conversation, I don't care which of us is right or wrong. I care what's right and what's wrong. And uh, and then I push, and I make sure they've done their homework, and I, I make sure that we're using the same set of definitions, because uh, that can be a source of strife that of strife that's not strife, right? It's an imaginary disagreement uh, when it's just you're not using the words the same way. Uh, and I, I make sure they've done their homework. Now, all of that to the day I upload this, I will also upload a copy of a video that I did when I was in Bible college, because baptism was a big deal with the uh, body of believers that were at that college at the time. Uh, It's called Baptism Wars. It is a spoof of Star Wars about disagreeing over baptism, and it's amazing. So there's another copy of it here on YouTube I'm going to link to, but I'm also going to upload the full thing to my channel, because it's fantastic, and more people need to see it. It's amazing. Uh, the gentleman, Mr. Fuller, who shows up in the middle of it, has gone on to be with the Lord. He was the pastor of a church in Florida for a while before he passed. And uh, he's a good and godly man. And uh, why all the why all the violence? Alright, that's all I've got for you. Don't take my word for it. I will see you next time. Godspeed.